Hi, everyone. This is episode two of Diamonds and Wine. My name is Elisa. I am the CEO of Lady Lovely's Curio and Affiliated Brands. This is a podcast about antique and vintage jewelry and these wonderful wearable pieces of art and how they come into our lives and are just beautiful to touch, hold, and enjoy. Um, This is a really cool episode, I think. One of the biggest questions that I am constantly asked is, what do you have in your personal collection, Elisa? Um, So I figured that before I started diving into giving lectures and talking to guests, I thought that it would be great if I could share my personal experience of why I started collecting antique jewelry and why I was as I said in my last podcast, absolutely bitten by the bug and why I kind of became jewelry crazy (laughs) and uh, why I wanted to start doing this. So my parents collect antiques and always have collected antiques. So I realized when I was very young that I wanted to collect something too. So the first thing that I collected were troll dolls. Um, But once I grew out of that, uh, I decided I wanted to start collecting things that I could wear because I was really into dress up. And I bought a little, um, I still have it, it's a a midnight blue cape with a silk lining from the 1930s or 40s and it's so cute and I think I paid like three or four dollars for it at a local yard sale. This woman had some stuff from a costume shop and I remember it very vividly, she was getting rid of it and I, I just love this little cape and I walked up to her and I asked very proudly, how much is this cape? She told me and I handed her the money and I marched off with it and I was very pleased with it. And that was kind of when it all started for me. I started collecting. I developed a love for kind of accruing things that I liked. I wasn't a hoarder, of course. I didn't I didn't keep everything. And there was definitely like an awareness of what I was picking up. But I remember when I was in like second and third grade, I had a rock collection and I loved rocks. I loved geodes. I loved anything that I could, that that came out of the earth. I was really obsessed with that. And even then my, I did a, a science project early on around that age. And my father, my father kind of said, you know, you should go into jewelry one day when you're older. You'd, I think you'd do well with that. And um, it was it was something that he kind of always said, and it was sort of always in the my collective consciousness within my family. We were always sort of thinking that, and then we had um, the opportunity to do so, and that's a whole story for another podcast down the line. I'll I'll tell this like the actual origin story of how I started the business, but in terms of beginning to collect, I started collecting jewelry when I was very young and I collected mostly silver for the majority of my early years and I was kind of aghast at the prices of gold jewelry. Of course, I don't I don't come from a very wealthy family. We're not, you know, we're not crazy rich or anything. It was just oh, it was something that I couldn't afford. I really metered my purchases. I could afford dresses or something like, you know, $100, $200. That was like what I would allow myself. That was what I I kind of deigned was okay to spend my money on. But gold jewelry, I was kind of nervous. I was like, "I, I don't know much about this and I don't want to start, you know, go down this rabbit hole. But then I found a piece. Um, I It kind of came into my possession by accident. And I was like, this is, this is the stuff. This is it. I started, I, st- I became an antique jewelry dealer shortly after that. And it took me a while to actually start 
collecting things for myself and I was very careful in the early days I wanted very badly to keep things but when it's when it's the numbers get a little bit bigger you get nervous and you say I I don't think I should keep this I need to sell it this is my livelihood it's my business you know when it's your business you're like okay I I can't just hold on to this it wouldn't be right but the first piece that I actually purchased and kept for myself was I was in London and I had a couple pieces that I was kind of like holding back from the market but I vividly remember when I purchased something for the first time that like was mine and I intended to never sell it ever and I still have it it's right in front of me it's a fob it's this really sweet little nine carat rose gold fob and it it has uh and it's incised onto it is Um, a bird cage on top of a beautiful table and the cage is open and the bird is flying out of it and it says in French uh, qui me néglige me perd meaning he who neglects me loses me I was so I was so in love with this piece it just it, it captivated me and I realized that if I didn't get it or if I got it and sold it I would lose a little piece of myself and I never, I mean, it's so, it's so strange to think about it that way, but I think we collect pieces that are symbolic to us and we want to hold on to things that have a certain meaning in our lives. And this is one such piece for me. I keep it in my jewelry box. I don't wear it often because I think that it's more something that I like to touch and to have and to enjoy and to kind of have a personal moment with rather than something that is, you know, very very loud or physical or something that you see from across the room it's kind of like if I if I were to have a museum of the things that mean the most to me I would I would include this fob because it has such a sweet message my mother was born in France actually and even though we don't have French citizenship I feel very close to the French culture I grew up speaking French and went often to France although my French now is a little (laughs) a little bit not so much as good as it once was but I felt as though that piece came into my life at the right time. And that's really when I started seriously hoarding jewelry. That was when I started truly collecting to have and to hold and to keep and to enjoy. So I'm going to talk about, um, I'm going to talk about five pieces in my personal collection that are sort of worth discussing and, and really important pieces. And each one of them was, interestingly, a turning point for sort of discovering new things about myself. And one of them I adopted as recently as two nights ago. So so as you can see, I'm still actively collecting and I'm definitely very actively a part of the Instagram community. Uh, For those of you who don't know me through Instagram, I'm, I, I kind of classify myself as a modern jewelry dealer. I'm an Instagram seller, firstly and foremostly. I do a lot of live videos on Instagram, and I love interacting with my friends. I've made incredible friendships with some of the beautiful, beautiful people that I've gotten to know through Instagram. And uh, I just purchased this, this piece very recently from one of my new friends, so I'll talk about that. But I'm going to dive right into it, actually, with something that... Now, a lot of my friends are... English. A lot of my jewelry friends are English. I go to England uh, quite regularly. In fact, I'm getting on a plane on Tuesday to go to Paris and then to, I don't know when we're airing this, but uh, I'm 
uh, very, very recently. In fact, it might go live when I'm in London, um, but I'll be there very, very shortly. I want to talk about this piece that I got. This is kind of a weird jewelry piece. It's not the sort of thing that everybody has in their collection. It's something that is, I don't know, one of the great things about jewelry is that it truly is wearable art. You are decorating your body with these like artistic things that are not made of fabric. They don't really drape. They're meant to go and be a part of you and you kind of become this sculpture when you are wearing it and you interact with the jewel as you are living and it is inanimate in a very different way than you do with a piece of clothing because when you put a piece of clothing on it moves with you it kind of becomes a part of you and it it sort of is like who you are because you are transversing the world around you with it on with a piece of jewelry what is the purpose of jewelry jewelry and I think in its most basic form is a signifier it signifies something either to you to the people around you to your environment your social circle um, to the MRI machine if you go into an MRI machine wearing one don't do that guys do not do that <laughs> you know it kind of uh, it kind of interacts with your environment and you personally in a very different way than clothing does so this first piece kind of challenges that notion um I know it's such a build-up for this uh this piece is called an aigrette. It is a hair ornament, which is really, really fascinating. Hair ornaments have been around for centuries. Um, the This particular one that we're looking at is um, an 18th century example. It was probably French because it's very fanciful. It's not made of gold. It is one of the only pieces in my personal collection that is made of neither gold nor silver. Um, and it is actually just a gold tone metal. I bought it thinking it was gold and like no regrets though because I'm obsessed with it. So um, even though it's French, I'm going to call it Georgian because I'm actually a stickler about like noting the period of a piece by like where it was geographically so I'm just going to say Georgian for ease of saying that even though that is a signifier that it was under the reign of the three Georges in England okay all of that aside sorry had to geek out for a second it's beautiful circa I'm gonna say probably circa 1760 1770 think like definitely Marie Antoinette is in the court at this time we're definitely we, we definitely have very fanciful and fabulous things happening with French fashion at that moment. Everything is about size, I think. You have a lot, a lot of interest in how high can the pompadour hair go? How opulent can the gowns be? How much trim can we fit on this and she can still fit through the door? You know, these were the questions. These... <laughs> These were the, these were the questions um, that were important at that moment. So this is foiled flat cut garnets, and what I love about my aigrette is that it has a lot of symbolism. First, you have two um, beautiful feathers that are parted. So it has one larger feather on the left and a smaller feather on the right, and then it's all tied together with this garnet bow at the bottom. And then it has an additional flower that it's possible that the flower is not original to the piece and was added, but the flower was added en tremblant, meaning that as you move and bob your head, the flower dances ever so slightly. It's on a little bit of a spring. And even the central element of the flower actually twists back and forth. So 
it's a very physical piece. This piece, as in total um, opposition to the fob that I was talking about that really started my collecting, um, my serious personal collecting, this piece is very big. It's meant to be seen. You wear it in your hair. Uh, the the aigrettes were either hair or turban ornaments, and they could be seen from across the room. Interesting bit of trivia about the aigrette. Um, they actually set it into uh, a turban aigrette for Jam Sahib, a Maharaja, in 1934. Really interesting bit of diamond trivia for those of you who love some diamond trivia. So, um, that's why this piece is so interesting, I think, because it's such an uncommonly seen type of jewelry. I was very fascinated by it. And I've also always loved hair ornaments. Back when I was into steampunk jewelry, I used to make a lot of fascinators. Uh, for those of you who are familiar, fascinators are kind of really cool and funky because you put them in your hair and then they just clip in and they're cute. Um, anyway, so that's that. Next piece is a more recent acquisition of mine. I'm actually holding each of these pieces in my hand as I talk about them because I think that that's, that's a very important part of the process. This is such a special necklace. I, I absolutely love it. I'm, I'm floored and honored that it's actually mine to have and to hold. Sometimes I actually just go to my jewelry box and I touch it. I have not worn it many times, but you all can rest assured that I will be wearing it probably for an 18th century event in the not-too-distant future as it is comprised of incredible um, flat-cut pink tourmalines, actually. They are not garnets like my aigrette, um, although they are definitely in the same color family. And from a bit of a distance, they definitely look like garnets, which is most interesting. Um, so this is a really important piece because this is, oh, circa, circa 1790 to 1810. And the reason why I think the Pansy Revere's are so well known is because most of them were gifts. I was reading about this the other day. The majority of these were gifts. They were not just a fashion statement of, you know, the love, one of the first naturalist movements that was happening at that period with a focus on, you know, florals and the fauna and the flowers and all of those details. But many people talk about symbolism in Georgian jewelry. And this likely is actually an English piece. So we can certainly and firmly say Georgian jewelry. And I have a little anecdote about that that I'm going to share with you in a second. But that they were symbolic because the pansy in the language of flowers, which was really developed actually earlier in the 18th century. And some people say um, as early as the 17th century. And some people can actually trace it back to medieval times when the birthstones first emerged. But the pansy was known as a flower that communicated, think of me, which I think is so terribly romantic. I mean, I absolutely, absolutely love that. I, I'm like, I'm, <laughs> I don't know what to say other than that I am utterly moved by that sentiment. And I think it's Ugh, it's so sweet. And one of the things that I really, really love about this pansy necklace and the detail is that it also has an additional type of like cluster flower. So it alternates between pansies and the six petaled flower. And there have kind of been the there are a couple of different opinions on what that flower might be, but I 
I just so appreciated as kind of a communication of the language of flowers that was very prolific at that time. And those are yet interspersed again with um, little leaf-like details. So I really love this necklace and I, I'm, I'm honored to be the owner of it. And um, I promised I'd share a little anecdote. And I actually recently discovered this because many of you know one of the best places to learn about jewelry is museums. One of the other best places to learn about it are pieces that are offered for sale. Um, and there was a piece on First Dibs, many of you may be familiar with that site, that was a wonderful, wonderful pansy necklace formerly owned by Princess Amelia, King George III's favorite daughter. And she died prematurely, but she actually left her pansy necklace to her sister Mary so that Mary could often think of her. Uh, the think of me theme reemerges. So not necessarily a gift between lovers, but rather a gift between sisters, one from the grave to the other. I can think of no more appropriate use for a piece like this than... You know, we were talking about how your jewelry can be so much more symbolic, um, a gift of a, a gift given in a time of mourning. Mourning was uh, something that really, really was important to Georgian culture, and then of course Victorian culture, as many of you know. I have a wonderful Georgian mourning ring in my collection, but I'm not going to talk about it today. It's one of the coffin ones with the crystal top. I will save that for a later show, and I will do a show on mourning jewelry soon. I have three really fab examples, four fab examples in my collection, but I'll talk about a couple of the pieces that I have in stock in the future, and we'll, we'll talk about mourning at a later date because it's a whole, whole big other topic. But right now, I want to talk about my uh, pearl band. So the way that I came into possession of this piece, I got it from one of my dearest dearest friends in the jewelry world, uh, Cole of Kieran Curiosity. She's so sweet and wonderful. And I adopted it from her and I, I initially bought it with the intention of reselling it. And <laughs> what happened with this band was I was keeping it at my apartment, which I try never to do. Like, I don't do that anymore. I don't take stock over to my apartment anymore. I try to keep it all in the office. But I had been photographing it, and it just kind of disappeared. It disappeared for something like six months, and I couldn't find it. And I was like, oh, goodness, we better take the listing down for this piece. Let's hide it. No one should know that uh, we have it, you know, because I can't find it. So one day it'll turn up. And then my amazing boyfriend uh, broke a glass and he was cleaning it up and into the dustpan goes this beautiful ring which had been hiding underneath my couch. And I was like, I, 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 w I actually cried <laughs> when he handed it to me because I, uh, I, I, I was so sad to have lost it. And after that experience, I took it to the jeweler and I had it sized to fit my um, middle finger on my right hand and I was like there's something about this ring that I can't let go of it's really beautiful because it's a late Georgian early Victorian ring with big fat juicy pearls and they're all different colors it kind of looks like a moon that's like waxing and waning or just like a series of celestial moons forming a semicircle around a planet to light up the midnight sky I love that it's so many different colors that's one of the really great details of the band. Um, so I named her Luana a while ago, partially based on the Bright Eyes song Lua, which I love. But anyway, I, uh, I added Luana so she'd kind of be like Luna but a little more exotic because she is a little exotic. So 
I love that ring. I wear it almost every day. I'm very careful, as you should all be, with pearl jewelry because um, even in the Georgian period, the pearls are glued in. You should not wash your hands with them. Anyway, just a little bit, a little bit of my inner conservationist coming out there. That is, Luana is one of my favorite rings. The second to last piece that I'm going to talk about, I literally got this two days ago. So I got this, I got this ring from uh, one of my new Instagram friends and I bought a couple of things from her. Um, Gem Bank, she's so sweet. I hope you, you all get to look at her beautiful treasures. And she'd had this ring for a while. It's a beautiful blue and white enamel band. And I was thinking about it. I was thinking, thinking, do I want to get that? Oh, I don't know. And I opened it up and I took it out of the box and I immediately put it on my finger. And it fit perfectly. It's, I mean, this is the kind of ring that's impossible to resize because it has the enamel all the way around on all sides. You can't, you can't do anything. It, just, it is what it is. You cannot size it. It either fits you or it doesn't. And I think that I believe in the meant to be. I say that a lot in my live videos. And I just feel like this ring was meant to be with me. Blue and white are two of the rarer colors of enamel. Perhaps many of you will know that black is a more common color, especially the Victorians loved black. They uh, used it extensively. And I love Georgian blue enamel pieces and I love Georgian white enamel pieces. Anyway, so yes, that was my most recent addition to my collection. Um, and the last ring that I want to talk to you guys about is like, I would say that it's the most controversial piece in my collection. And I love that term. I, I mean, I love controversy in the sense that it gets people thinking. It gets everybody paying attention. I think I talked about this in my first podcast, but the idea of what's real and what's fake in jewelry absolutely fascinates me. I, my term of what is real is anything that is made of a, a substance that it's described to be made of and if it is from the period that it is described to be from. So this is a wonderful solid gold 18 karat ring with a silver top. And it was sold to me as Georgian, but further research has definitely revealed to me that this is a fantastic Dutch piece, probably from the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, meant to be a revival of the Georgian period and she is massive. This is the first and only piece to this date that I have put on layaway because I went through hell and high water to own her. I love her. I don't have a name for her yet, which is like crazy, um, but I have to work on that. I'm crazy about this ring. Um, the rose cut diamonds total uh, over two carats and the shape and size. She has a I think it's a Russian import hallmark, meaning that she probably spent some time in Russia, which is extra fascinating to me because anytime that something has an import hallmark, we kind of have a little, it's like a passport book. It's got a passport stamp on it. This piece has been to Russia. Like how cool is that? I don't know if it was for resale or if it was the person who bought it and brought it back had to assay it when they came into Russia. So many questions, but just such a fascinating and beautiful ring. And guys, of course, I'm going to post photos of all of these pieces in my story and title it that this is from the second podcast and I'll save them so you can all uh, see and talk about them. But I I absolutely love this ring and I, 
I love wearing it. There's something very empowering about wearing it. Like I feel, I don't know, I, I, just, I just feel larger than life when I put it on. Um, I wore it on a date with my boyfriend a couple weeks ago and I had this like very slinky bias cut dress on, kind of like a 1930s, like uh, 1920s bias cut. And I put this on and I felt like a queen. And that is part of the transformative nature of jewelry. You know, when you say, I feel like a million bucks, you know, of course you're probably, and I mean, some people are like, hello, Beyonce, props to you, girl, every time you get dressed, you know, and you wear that engagement ring, couple million, amazing. But you don't always have to be wearing something that's literally worth a million bucks to feel like a million bucks. Sometimes it's a $1.99 lipstick from Rite Aid. Like, you know, I think that there's something so transformative about slipping on a ring, putting on a necklace, doing your hair up in a pompadour and putting an aigrette in it, you know, it's out of the ordinary. It goes into the extraordinary because that's the process of adorning yourself with the jewels that resonate with you, with the works of art that you want to have as a part of your personal presentation and thus self-representation it's so individual it's it's just magical well thanks guys i really hope that you enjoyed the second episode of diamonds and wine uh if you had as much fun listening as I did recording it, uh, you can go and check out the first episode, which is actually on our website, ladylovelyscurio.com. And we have a lot more awesome content on there. Check out our Instagram if you haven't already. I try to post like two or three pictures a day, plus the story is always like there's a party going down. Um, So you can see that at uh, lady underscore lovelies underscore curio um, and be sure to check out our affiliated brands the lovely jewels for your diamond d addiction needs um, and uh, the jewel coven my newest brainchild that we are always working on and loving for our goth dark autumnal selves um, i hope you had a good time i'll see you guys next week 